0: Please turn with me this morning in your copies of God's Word to Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew, chapter 5. just want to read this morning the first three verses of Matthew in the fifth chapter. Here we find our Lord Jesus seeing the multitudes. He went up on a mountain, and when He was seated, His disciples came to Him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's ask God's blessing one more time. Lord, we come to you this morning, and the holy seed of your word is now being scattered. And Lord, we would ask of you that it would find root in good soil, That you would be pleased, Lord, to preserve us from distraction, and that you would help us to hear what you say to your people. We ask it in the name of our Lord and our Savior, our King, Christ. Please bless and help. Amen. I want to, before we begin to look at, we're just going to be looking at one verse today, verse 3. But before we do that, because it's been several weeks since I actually gave two introductory sermons to uh, this text, the, the Sermon on the Mount, more specifically the Beatitudes, I want to come back and just by way of reminder, I want to say a few very brief things. Firstly, this. As we come to these words in verse 3, we're coming again to hear the words of King Jesus. We're coming to hear the words of of that One who was called Emmanuel, God with us. We're coming to hear the words of our Savior and our Lord. These are His words. Not the words of a man, but the words of a king. And as He opens His mouth and He speaks to us, He speaks to us of a heavenly kingdom. He's not speaking to us in this Sermon on the Mount, and He's not speaking to us in these Beatitudes, and He's not speaking to us in verse 3 here about worldly things, all this that he has to say runs contrary to the philosophies. It runs contrary to the ideologies. It runs contrary to the schemes of man and the schemes of this world. He speaks here to us about spiritual things. He speaks to us about that which is true of all of those true members of his kingdom. By His grace. And all as we come this morning, might we hear, might we receive that implanted Word which is able to save our souls and to sanctify our souls. And as we come to this passage, we come with Him beginning by telling us of the blessedness of those who are poor in spirit. The blessedness of those who truly inherit the kingdom of heaven. And therefore I say, we do well, brethren. And the reason that I go very briefly over those things which were previously covered about who it is that's speaking and what it is that he's speaking and to whom he's speaking is so that as we come to this, we might endeavor to labor to give our utmost attention to the meaning of the words that we find here in verse 3. Again, bless it are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the first thing in looking at that verse, Blessed are the poor in spirit, that I would have you to note, is that this beatitude is set forth first as the the fundamental characteristic of all those who truly are a part of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you think of this, when you think of the King come from heaven to earth, God with us standing and opening His mouth as it were for the first time and speaking and preaching His first sermon and opening it up and saying the words that are before us now. What a strange way to begin a sermon. If I'm going to have something to say to the multitudes of people and to my disciples before me. That I would open with these words. Blessed are the poor. In spirit. Why does he put it there first? Why does he lay this before us as the first fundamental characteristic of those who are inheritors of the kingdom of heaven. Well, I have three primary reasons. I do not want to spend a a large amount of time on these, but I do think that it's important to help us to frame our thinking about what he is teaching and what he is saying here. So, first I would say this, that it is what he's saying here in verse 3 is an emphatic, declaration, firstly, of who He is and what He came to do. Again, we went over that in the introduction about who it is that's speaking, but this, these words, the very words that He says themselves, they are they are the fulfillment of the prophecy of His coming and His primary purpose of coming to earth, His primary mission. Isaiah 61 and verse 1. The the prophet says there, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, speaking of Christ, because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good tidings to the poor. And when Jesus opens up the scroll of the book in the synagogue at Nazareth, this is what he reads from And He says to those people, Today, this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. It was His primary mission to come and to preach the good news to the poor. And therefore, it's only befitting that the very first words out of His mouth in this Sermon on the Mount would be, Blessed are the poor in spirit, rightly and according to His glorious wisdom. He begins at the beginning of what was prophesied giving good news to the poor, that if this is you, you are blessed. Further, I would add to that, that he begins with this particular emphasis, blessed are the poor in spirit, to highlight a vital aspect, a vital aspect of this gospel dispensation which he is ushering in, and a vital aspect of this true religion which he is endeavoring to lay before these people. You see, to understand the significance of what he's saying here, and why he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, first, you must understand something about the people to whom he's speaking. All eyes in those days were on the rich. All eyes were on the learned. All eyes were on those who were deemed powerful. All the religion of that day bowed at the feet of these men, And it was taken up entirely. Everything they taught, everything they said, all that their followers were told to do was taken up up entirely with externals. And by saying this, blessed are the poor in spirit, he emphatically is declaring two things about the kingdom that's meant to immediately cut through all of those external elements of religion that existed in that day. One of them is that it's not primarily or fundamentally what a man does, but what a man is that's most important. And that's why he's telling them here, blessed are the poor in spirit. He goes on in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 20. And he says to them that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on in the sermon to deal with the matters of the heart, the motives of man, the root that makes the tree either good or bad. You see, the Pharisees were experts in externals. But inwardly, he calls them, in chapter 6, ravenous wolves. And the righteousness that he speaks of in chapter 5 and verse 20 that exceeds their outward pretension is based on what a man is in himself, not what he appears to be. Hypocrisy was the name, was the word of that day. And what Jesus wants to do by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, is to cut through all hypocrisy, to cut through all externals. We're talking about matters of the heart. That's the focus of the gospel. But also, these words, and the reason that they're important, and the reason that he speaks them first, is because they highlight, not only that these men were all about externals, But the gospel is about the heart, but it also highlights that a man's blessedness, and this was prevalent thinking in their day, I think that oftentimes prevalent thinking in our day, that a man's blessedness does not primarily, or or does rather primarily consist in the outward provisions of God. That's what they thought. That's what ruled the day. And that's. What he's saying here when he says blessed are the poor in spirit is a total upending to all of that religion. So much of what was conveyed to Israel, if you'll recall, you can even find it. They had good warrant in some ways to think about religion the way that they thought about religion because so much of what was conveyed to Israel under the old covenant consisted of that which was outward, that which was tangible, right? Shadows and types that they were given. Aids that was, they were meant to point to something greater. They were meant to point to the substance. But everywhere they went, the temple, the sacrifices, all that was constructed in all of their worship was all tangible, all external. But also the blessings that were promised to them dealt with externals. Just take note of uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, as an example of what I'm saying here, verse 13, when he's talking about the people, he says to them, if they listen to his judgments and keep and do them, that here is the promise, he will love you and bless you and multiply you, he will also bless The fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your cattle, the offspring of your flock, in the land of which He swore to your fathers to give you, and so on. He goes on and He gives more tangibles. But because of these tangibles, because of these what I'm calling shadows of God's blessings, the common thought that drove the the minds of the people in that day was that if it went well with a man, That was proof that God was being gracious to him. And if it didn't go well with a man, then that was proof that God was not being gracious to him. That was the whole issue, really, even before the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. That was the issue with Job and his friends. That was their whole dilemma. Job had been struck down and their thinking was, wait a second Job, you must have sinned against God because God does not treat people who walk in obedience to Him the way that you're being treated right now. That was deeply ingrained in the thinking of these people. But the gospel dispensation and the ushering in of the spiritual kingdom of God differs drastically from all that. And now instead of tangible blessings, we're told things like Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. The, The tangible, here's a paradox, the tangible was shadow for the substance which is intangible, spiritual. That's what Christ comes preaching. And that's something of what these words are meant to indicate in our thinking, in their thinking especially. Luther said this about this statement in verse 3, They are for the overturning of this false notion and for the tearing it out of their hearts as one of the greatest hindrances to true faith. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And when the people of that day heard it, it was something that would have fallen upon their ears with absolute shock. That runs completely against what they believed. And therefore, he speaks it first. And thirdly, And coming nearer, I think, to the meaning of the words themselves, the reason that he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, first before saying anything else, is because it is first, as a matter of evangelical experience, and essential to all that follows. Why does He say to you and to I, to those disciples and to the multitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit? Because blessed are the poor in spirit is the foundation of everything else that follows in this Sermon on the Mount. It's first, as I said, a matter of evangelical experience. It's the very basis and the foundation of all other graces. In fact, I would go so far as to say that it's the great, what he says in verse 3, is the great foundational stone of all true saving faith. That's how important, that's how significant this this. Verse is, with regard to this gospel dispensation. Let me say it another way. This beatitude, if you will, is the narrow gate through which alone entrance is given to Christ's kingdom. He speaks in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, of that narrow gate. Lloyd-Jones, in his preaching on the Sermon of the Mount, later on in dealing with chapter 7 and that verse that speaks of the narrow gate, actually makes a comment, uh, I'm not quoting it verbatim, but something to the point of when a man approaches the narrow gate, there is a sign that hangs upon that gate. And it says, if you would enter here, you must leave yourself outside. That's why this verse is so significant, because it is that through which alone we are able to enter into the kingdom of God. He begins here because it ushers in all the rest, as I trust as we go through this, you'll see. So, how then... Is this to be understood? Those are some reasons why he says it first. But how is it to be, how is, are these words to be taken? Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does he mean by giving us this as the first foundational characteristic? That's what we want to know. That's what we need to know. If that's the way into the narrow gate, if that's what categorizes and characterizes all of the people of God and all those who truly inherit the kingdom, then it is essential that we must answer this question. And I think it right, if you'll bear with me for just a few more minutes, because there have been so many varying interpretations of this, I think it right to clear the way by first dealing with it negatively, to speak of some negatives, and and, and to talk about what it does not mean. Sometimes the best way to help us understand something is to knock away what it doesn't mean, right? So I want to do that. Okay, And the first thing that I would say, most emphatically, is that what he does not have in mind here, as he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, is the poverty of this world. Of course, we find here written to us, blessed are the, and then the qualifying statement, the poor in spirit. Luke chapter 6, he just says, the poor. And therefore, many have taken it as Christ speaking to a people and saying that blessing comes through poverty in this world. In other words, what they say is that it's not teaching us to be poor in spirit so much as it's teaching us to be poor in this world, to go and to sell all that we have so that we might enter into the kingdom of heaven. But may I say to you, and I think you understand this, the Bible never glorifies poverty It nowhere teaches that poverty saves. It nowhere teaches that poverty is even to be the mainstay under the gospel dispensation. Are there some who are called to give everything up? Yes, they are. We think of missionaries that we even in this very day pray for, who are among the poorest of the poor. Well, God has called them to that. But that doesn't mean of necessity that all must be poor in this way. Poverty does not guarantee blessedness. And to say this would be making the same mistake that the Jews made about wealth. They were basing their blessing uh, from God upon externals. And to say that a man is only blessed and only given entrance into the kingdom of God if he gives up everything would be to do the exact same thing. To base religion... Only on externals. And further, if that were the case, then every idol and every covetous poor man would be entitled to the kingdom. But from a natural standpoint, we know that the poor can be and sometimes are actually much worse than even the wicked rich. Right? So just because a man is poor in this world doesn't mean that he's a child of God. Further, I would say that that would exclude any in this world that would be considered wealthy. And therefore, that's not what he's speaking of here. Another characteristic that I think is often confused with what our Lord is speaking of is sort of a a native poorness of spirit. This This is the kind of person that is naturally shy. This is the kind of person that is kind of nervous, feeblish, Fearful in spirit, timid maybe, lacking in courage. The one who is content to kind of sit back in a corner and not engage with people around them, maybe out of some kind of fear or timidity. That's not what the Lord Jesus is speaking of here. Timothy, I think, was one of those kinds of people, perhaps natively timid. And Paul, when he writes to him, 2 Timothy 1 7, you know the verse well, he says to, him, to, to, Tim, to Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear. This spirit of fear uh, and timidity is something quite the opposite of that which characterizes the saint, Timothy. And perhaps Timothy's timidity, whether it was native, or whether it was because of the pressure placed upon him by the gospel, and by persecution, and by what he saw happening to Paul, and therefore it was kind of stirred up a little bit more. I don't know, but Paul is saying very emphatically, that is not what God does in the life of the believer. What Christ is speaking of, what Paul is speaking of, is not something that a man is born with when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So it's not native, not anything native. If any man is poor in spirit, it is not because of anything that he is in himself. I think we should also note that this is not speaking of someone who has a self pitying poverty. You know the kind of person that I'm speaking of? That person who's always down on themselves? That person who has a poor view of themselves? What the, what the world would refer to as someone who has a low self-esteem? That person that's always kicking themselves. That person that's always castigating themselves. Telling themselves, what a stupid and an idiotic... I just, why did I do that? You know the kind of person that I'm talking about. That's not what the Lord Jesus means. And I would even go so far as to say that that actually can be an, an absolute contradiction... To what Christ means. Neither is it a false or hypocritical uh, hypocritical poverty that he speaks of. A kind of false humility. I like to call it a humility of effort. That's not what the Lord Jesus means when he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who kind of grovel in some kind of false humility. C.S. Lewis referred to it as a greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's nobody. I'm nobody. It's not a suppression of personality, or gifts, or talents. That's not what the Lord Jesus is speaking of here. It's not even trying to make over as though any of those things were less than they really are. Lloyd-Jones said this, It does not mean that you have to change your name or falsely crucify yourself or assume another character and personality in life than the one that God gave you. God gave you. God made you in His image. God gave you your gifts. God gave you your talents. God gave you your skills. And to push them aside and to act as though they don't exist or they're unimportant is not what the Lord Jesus has in mind, it doesn't mean that you can't be successful, that you can't recognize and even use your gifts advantageously. lloyd John says that is utterly unscriptural and quite unchristian to act in that way. So then, those are the negatives. What does he mean? Blessed are the poor in spirit. If it's not worldly poverty, and if it's not a false humility, and if it's not a native condition, and if it's not a a self-hatred that beats itself up all the time, then what is it? Now, I want to preface what I'm going to say with this side note, okay? Because I think that this is very important. When we come to this question, what does he mean by blessed are the poor in spirit? It's very easy for us to become confused between what it actually is and the way that it's worked out. In other words, what I mean by saying that and giving this caveat is that many seek to answer this question by giving its evidences instead of its essence. They confuse the core with characteristics, People do this when they don't really know how to define a thing, right? For instance, I, I tried to think of a, an apt illustration for this, but uh, but perhaps the wind, and you say, define the wind. and Someone looks out at the trees and says, see, there it is right there. I don't know exactly how to define it, but I'm going to try to define it by the effects that I see by it. And when you pick up books and commentaries and things of that nature, very often what you find is that people will seek to try to define poor in spirit, firstly, not by what it is as to its essence, but what it is as to its experience. It's outworking. And we're going to come to those things in due course, but I don't want to deal with the outworkings of it right now. In fact, I would go so far as to say that everything that follows in this text is the evidence of being poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who thirst and hunger for righteousness. These are all evidences. These are all the outworkings of what the Lord Jesus says here. But it is not all of those things is not the core of what being poor in spirit means. Now with that caveat in place let's think about this Okay, for just a little bit. The Greek word poor means to crouch. And in ancient Greek literature it came to be equated with being reduced to beggary, begging out of shame. That's crouching. With hand open. That's it's the word that's used to describe the poor man. Lazarus, Luke 16, verse 20. But there was a certain beggar, that's our word, that's the exact same word. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus, and listen to how he's talked about. Full of sores, who was laid at his gate, the rich man's gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. And even in that language, who was laid at his gate, it almost seems passive so though this man couldn't even put himself there. He had to be carried there. He was laid at this man's gate day by day. While the dogs came by and licked his sores. And he just waited for some crumbs to fall from the man's table. The beggar. And Jesus says, blessed is the beggar. Blessed is the poor In spirit, and I hope that that illustration of Lazarus helps us get some picture in our minds, maybe, of what the Lord Jesus means. It's not just some lazy person, it's not some idle person that he's speaking of, it's not even somebody who's kind of middle class to lower class but has some ability to go out and work for themselves. That's not who, there's another word in the Greek for that. And that's not the word that the Lord Jesus uses here. The word that He's using here, this is the person who has no choice but to beg. One writer has put it this way, someone with no wealth, no influence, no position, no honor, no respect, no ability, and possessing nothing. This word indicates being so poor and so destitute and so unskilled, your poverty is so deep and you're so unable that all that you can do is beg of another. You don't have the capability to work. You don't have the skill to work. So you're totally dependent on the gifts of others. Everything comes to you from an outside source. You have no resource No talent, no skill, no craft, no trade, nothing. That's what the word indicates. That's what the word means. And typically in the ancient world, it it would so humiliate a man to be a beggar, and this is where that word comes in, that he would crouch, he would cover his face with a garment. He wouldn't wouldn't even look up, and he would just simply hold out his hand to the people walking by, asking and begging, please, please give me something. That's the word that's used here. But our, our Lord, as we've already commented, add, adds this qualifying statement. He says, those poor in spirit. as pertaining to that which is spiritual. And so when He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, what He means is all of those things that I've just mentioned, you didn't take that and you apply it to yourself, to your own heart, to who you are spiritually. That's the qualifying statement. Spiritual destitution. Blessed are those who are spiritually destitute. Blessed are those who are spiritually beggarly. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. The spiritual poverty that he's speaking of, I would say in a sense, it pertains to every single man. There is a sense in which what he's talking about here is universal. Every single human being From Adam to this very day, is powerless, is bankrupt, is morally unclean, and morally unworthy. Every person sitting in this room could be described in themselves as wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Those words that our Lord Jesus speaks to the church of Laodicea. It's true of all of us. God has said that we have all sinned, right? We know that. That we've all fallen short of His glory. That we've all transgressed His law. That we are spiritually dead. That we are by nature children of wrath. That we're enemies of God. That we're alienated from God. That we're without hope and without God in this world. Guilty, vile, and helpless. We, unable to please Him. Unwilling to please Him perishing in a poverty of the direst kind you look at a man like Lazarus And you hear and you see this picture that's drawn forth for us in that which the Lord Jesus was teaching those people. And here's this man who has to be carried to the gate. And as he lays there, he's just waiting for some crumb to fall, some moldy piece of bread even, to roll my way as the dogs lap up the sores and the the, the pus that oozes from my skin and you say, that's horrible, that's wretched. Perhaps it was even true of this man that when you walk by him, you could smell the stench of him. You say, oh, how awful that is. What Jesus is speaking of here, Lazarus doesn't even come close. He's speaking of what we are in ourselves. The Bible puts it in various ways, but it all means the same thing. Man is morally depraved, spiritually bankrupt. The difference, however, between what man is generally and universally and what Christ has in mind, and I think this is a key point to understanding what he's saying here, is that the one that he is speaking of, When he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, is that one who is not only all of those things which I've just mentioned, but the one who has come to recognize this as absolutely true of himself. Not every poor, beggarly, weak, vile sinner in this world is who Jesus has in mind here when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He's talking about a kind of poverty here that is a poverty of what I would call sensibility. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Yes, all men are poor in spirit, but those who are blessed are those who have been made sensible of what they are. If you read most of the old writers, most of those who would fall within Reformed tradition, Lloyd-Jones, Thomas Watson, A.W. Pink, Jeremiah Burroughs, On this text, though they don't linger long over the Word, they all use this word. It's a sensibility. As Spurgeon puts it, those our Lord is speaking of that are blessed are those who have discovered this fact about themselves. They have ascertained their own spiritual poverty. That's what separates the Christian That's what separates those who are members of the kingdom of Christ, the ones who come to experience the blessedness of His kingship and the blessedness of His kingdom. This is a fundamental difference from the rest of the world around Him. We see this consistently, I think, borne out in the lives of God's people throughout the testimony of Scripture. I want to give you some illustrations, but I only want to give you a sampling because actually we can find many samplings of this and what this looks like, how it's worked out. But Job, in Job chapter 42, verses 5 through 6, after having seen something of God... He says of himself, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Or Isaiah, when the glory of God filled the temple and he comes and the angels are crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah's response is, Woe is me." For I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Well, what was the difference between Isaiah and all the people that he dwelt around that were also of unclean lips? This one thing set him apart. He recognized, I am a man of unclean lips. Or Peter When face to face with our Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 5 and verse 8 after the Lord Jesus tells him to cast out a net and he brings in a great catch of fish. It says, When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Each of these men had been made sensible of two things. Two things. God And themselves God and themselves. They have been made sensible of His effulgence, of His white, hot, blazing glory, His purity, His holiness, His perfection, His power, and they had been made sensible of their black, cold, empty, pitiable self in the presence of this great God. And before we can ever go on to talk about the characteristics and the outworkings of this poverty of spirit, we must first see that that's central. There was in each of these people some discovery, some apprehension, some impression of the reality of the absolute powerlessness and privation within them. Lloyd-Jones again Uh, It was a tremendous awareness of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. It's saying, I stand before a holy God and there is absolutely nothing that I can offer to Him, nothing that I can give to Him. Nothing that I can do, nothing in me, nothing at all that is able ever to do anything that He requires of me. Nothing to commend myself to Him. And that's just us natively. We are creatures. He is God. But then you add to it sin. So that not only is it that I have nothing that I can commend myself to God with, But oh, how I've rebelled against him. How I've turned against him. How I've closed my eyes and closed my heart to him and turned away from him. I have nothing. I am nothing in the presence of God. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. The way that the Lord Jesus is putting it forth. To be made sensible. But I would say this, final, two final thoughts that I think are important. I don't want to go into the outworkings of it, because that's what the entire series on the Beatitudes will be. The outworkings of this being poor in spirit. But I do want to talk about two other, what we would call maybe effects, of this sensibility of our true condition before God. That aren't necessarily, they are in some way underlying the other things that are being said here, but aren't necessarily drawn out in clear lines. A twofold effect of that man who's been made sensible to his poverty of spirit, to his spiritual bankruptcy. And the first is this that it leads a man to a great emptying of himself, all that he once relied upon. All that he trusted and hoped in concerning himself is brought at once to a pile of rubble before him. It says with Isaiah, woe is me. I'm lost. I'm undone. I have unclean lips. It says with Job, I abhor myself. It says with Abraham, I am dust. And ashes. It says with David, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house? I am a worm, David says of himself in Psalm 22 and verse 6. I am not a man. It says with Peter, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. This poverty of spirit turns from all natural temperaments. It turns from all natural positions. It's what pride Holds on to. We hold on to anything and everything that might commend ourselves to ourselves, or commend ourselves to others, or commend ourselves even to God. And this poverty of spirit, the outworking of it, is this great self-emptying act, wherein it looks at all that it is... All that it has. It's family, nation, nationalities, bank accounts, successes, education, and anything else that you want to add to it. And it says with Paul, what are these things before God? I count them as rubbish. Only good for the dunghill. It turns from all good. And I would say that it turns from all bad as well. It turns from all that inflates the self. It turns even from our own self-pitying, our wallowing in filth, in the filth of our sin. And it says, with David Dixon, one of my favorite quotes, I have taken all my good deeds, and I have taken all my bad, and I have cast them in a heap before the Lord, and I have fled from them both. That's poverty of spirit. It completely... The sensibility of who we are in the presence of God in ourselves bursts the balloon of self. And it says, I can do nothing of myself. I can't think rightly. I can't live rightly. I can't judge rightly. It's all empty. It's all empty. I was reading recently in my consecutive reading through the Scriptures and I came to... What I thought was, again, another apt illustration of this, John 5 and verse 5, now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, He said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. I have nothing. Here I am, lying helpless for 38, 40, 50, 60 years, and I have no man to help me. That's what the sensibility of this poverty of spirit works in an individual. It wakens them up. I have nothing. The very word that our Lord uses in Matthew 5, verse 3, poor, or reduced to begging, it assumes that, doesn't it? It's not just someone who's poor, but someone who recognizes his poverty, recognizes that he has not even a rag, not even a thread to cover him in the presence of God. And is compelled by that to look away from myself, himself. There's nothing here in me. But the second immediate effect of this sensibility of the true spiritual condition before God of being poor in spirit is that of necessity. It causes the man not only to look away from himself, but to look to someone else. Again... The very wording that Jesus uses here suggests that he had more than self-abhorrence, self-emptying in mind. He says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the beggars, those who not only look away from themselves, but look to someone else. That's what a beggar does. He crouches with his hand stuck out. Those who no longer rely upon themselves, but upon others for their daily sustenance. Those people who have recognized that they are beyond the point of being able to take care of themselves, and therefore they beg. Here's another illustration that I thought was from Scripture, a beautiful picture of what I mean here. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful to ask alms from those who entered the temple. who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked alms. And fixing fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. This is beautiful, I think. Because it's exactly what I'm trying to say. Peter looks at him. And he says, look at us, beggar. Look at us. And what Luke writes next is this, verse 5. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. You see, there's two things there in that man. One... He suffered the humiliation of being carried to the gate every day and begging and asking alms of people. And two, when Peter and John said, look at us, he was very ready to look. That's what a beggar does. It's being brought to that point of utter desperation where in spite of the shame, in spite of the humiliation, perhaps in spite of the frustration, the long-waiting, All you know is that I need help. I need the aid of another. I need someone else who has a supply greater than that which I have. And I lean on them. This poverty of spirit that the Lord Jesus is speaking of here is a poverty that stretches forth the empty hand that it might be filled by mercy alone. The tax collector, Luke 18 Shows us very plainly the response of a man that has been made sensible to his poverty of spirit. Standing afar off, he would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Not what I have, but what I have not is the first point of contact. Between me and God. That's why he says this here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Because it's not what we have. But it's what we have not. That truly brings us in contact with who he is. Spurgeon said this. It empties a man and so makes him ready to be filled. It empties a man and so makes him ready to be filled. It lays the guilty sinner at the gate of mercy or among those dying ones around the pool of Bethesda to whom Jesus is wont to come. Lloyd-Jones, the Sermon on the Mount comes to us and it says, There is the mountain that you have to scale, the heights you have to climb. And the first thing that you must realize as you look at that mountain with which you are told that you must ascend, is that you cannot do it. That you're utterly incapable in and of yourself. And therefore, it compels us to cast ourselves upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who see it, those who are made sensible of it, they are the ones that Jesus says are blessed. Oh, and how it marks the life of every one of God's true people. How every single person that has entrance into the kingdom of God is marked by this true poverty of spirit. We have all come to the end of ourselves. We have all been made sensible of ourselves as they exist in the presence of the almighty God. And we have said two things. Lord, I have nothing, but oh God, you have everything. Jesus said, that's the kind of man that is blessed. The king speaks here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's his starting point. That's his starting point. And as he stands, and as he speaks those words as the starting point, he speaks them with a view to the cross. Maybe those people that he was speaking to didn't have that view. But the Lord Jesus had that view. Matthew, when he's writing it, has that view And as He begins at the very beginning with blessed are the poor in spirit and those who know that they have nothing and those who look to God for mercy alone, He has the cross in view. And He knows that He's going to pay the price. That He alone is going to scale the mountain and ascend it and do the very thing that you and I can never do. And those who fall upon Him, those who trust in Him alone can be said to be the ones who are truly poor in spirit. We sang in that hymn, 192, None shall ever be confounded, who on Him their hope have built. But none will ever build their hope upon Him until they are made sensible. I am poor in spirit. God willing, this afternoon we'll come back. And we'll talk about what it means to be blessed by being poor in spirit. Lord Jesus, we bow before you and we thank you in your infinite wisdom that as you open your mouth, you would start at the very foundation, the the very first and most essential thing that all of us must come to reckon with in our own hearts, our spiritual poverty. Lord, every one of us in this room, whether we are sensible of it or not, are poor. And oh, Lord, how we pray that even in this very day, in giving thought to these things, that you would remind us in a most powerful way. This is where the Christian life begins. This is where the Christian life remains. Apart from you, we can do nothing. But oh, God, in you, we have all things. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would seal that to our hearts, that we would be a people marked truly by being poor in spirit. We ask it in your name, Lord. Amen.